If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today. We're actually going to wrap up this chapter today. In the last few weeks, we heard about how Daniel and his three Hebrew friends were brought from Jerusalem in exile to Babylon, how they were then put in a position to be trained as wise men and counselors to the king. As of last week, we saw the beginning of chapter 2, where King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, wants to know the interpretation, but in order to trust that the interpretation of it will be true, as given by his wise men and counselors, he wants to challenge them to tell him the dream itself in addition to the interpretation. So at this point in the story, God has put Daniel and his friends in a strategic place to pray for God's gift of the interpretation of this vision. And Daniel is now standing before King Nebuchadnezzar announcing that he knows what it is that God has delivered to him. Now, I almost broke today's sermon into two because of the kind of stuff that we needed to walk through here today, but I think I can knock it out in just one. So we're going to try to do that today in a single three-hour sermon, I think should probably... Um, If you want to follow along with me, that's great. I'm going to go ahead and just pray for our time in this sermon today. Uh, Then we're going to dive into chapter 2, verses 31 through 49. Let's pray. Lord, we trust you and ask for your guidance this morning as we read through this ancient book that is significant and applicable for even our day right now. Help me to be honoring to your uh, your instruction here, Lord. Help me as a pastor who's preaching this uh, to be true, to be clear, and to be helpful, and uh, soften our hearts with your Holy Spirit, uh, that we may receive what we hear today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's dive right into chapter 2, verse 31 through 35. This is when Daniel is giving the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. This was your dream, Nebuchadnezzar, to prove that I know what the interpretation is. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was one of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors." And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So in this part of our passage, Daniel tells the king of his dream. You can imagine Nebuchadnezzar sitting there uh, hoping to hear that a wise man can do this. Daniel tells him the details of his dream. And you can kind of imagine Nebuchadnezzar going, yes, that was it. Now what's the interpretation? Daniel describes what sounds like a statue made of four different parts, and then a fifth, a stone, comes in to crumble the statue as it strikes the feet. Now, before we go on, it's very important to understand a few things about how visions work in the Bible. I'm just going to pause for a moment and ask for you to to kind of bookmark where we are. We're going to come right back to this, but let's just consider what visions look like. And I'm going to bring up four characteristics of visions, of dreams given by God in the Bible that will be helpful for you to keep in your mind. There are more to be sure, but just consider these four. First, visions are often highly detailed. 
Visions often include details, uh, uh, specific characteristics given to an animal or a city or a throne in heaven. Second, these details are highly symbolic. In fact, they're given in such a way that they're often very difficult for us to interpret. When I say symbolic, what I mean is that in visions, statues are not statues. Stones are not stones. Stars are not stars. Lampstands are not lampstands. Those are symbols that represent something else. We can see that quite simply when we look at prophetic passages, but it's helpful just to be reminded so we don't switch categories and assume, well, this one's symbolic, this one's not. Let's be very careful to understand that's what we're looking at. These symbols, though, are not superfluous. They're not meaningless. They matter. God put them there. At the same time, though, we must admit that we may not know exactly what each individual detail might refer to. In fact, often the recipient of a vision in the Bible doesn't even know what many of those details mean. It's very common for a vision to be received, a dream to be had, and a person go, I woke up troubled. I did not understand. And there's lots of details that people can record and they've seen in the vision, but they're not quite sure what all those mean. So we need to be careful that we don't import into our own interpretation of these visions, things that aren't there. We've got to be very careful. Because the vision is inspired by the Holy Spirit, our interpretation of every detail isn't. Does that make sense? So it's not hard for you to find people who might even draw upon this specific vision, that of a statue, and they'll, they'll start seeing that the breakdown is of kingdoms. We'll see that in just a moment. The parts of the statue represent kingdoms. And some will say things like, well, if that's that kingdom, then what do the fingers represent? How about the fingernails? What about the dirt that's under the fingers? What would, what would that represent? Well, that's not highlighted here. So let's, uh, let's not get crazy, all right? That's kind of the thinking here. Number three, the one receiving the vision remembers the details perfectly. They remember the details perfectly. This might go without saying, but I'm going to say it to make sure we get this. This is very different than normal dreams that you and I might have. If you were to consider, for example, the last book of the Bible, it's called Revelation. It's, it's John's Revelation. He is able to have a single vision and then write down 22 chapters of scrupulous details. And none of those are errors. Have you ever tried to write down the details of a dream that you've had? I don't know. I forget the details of a dream before I've gotten out of bed oftentimes. If you try to do that, it's not unlikely that you might import uh, uh, things that weren't really part of the dream to fill in the memory gap. Some of you all do that in stories all the time when you're remembering a vacation 20 years ago and you kind of import, uh, well, between this event and this one, I'm sure something like this probably happened to get me to the next place. That's not what's happening when we read these Bible accounts. The recording of a biblical vision is inspired by the Holy Spirit and is therefore infallible. Those details were given by God. They were recorded under the inspiration of God, preserved throughout the ages by God, and are there for a reason. Fourth, visions are more than visual. Visions are more than visual. I want you to follow me here because this is actually very significant. It will be helpful in Daniel 2. It'll become more helpful in later visions we're going to have to walk through in Daniel. So I will remind you. And it is critical for visions that take place elsewhere in the Bible, particularly the book of Revelation. 
The words for vision and visual, I know, are derived from the same root, to see. And that's the case in Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, even in English. We also, visual, vision, we get that. But a careful reading of these accounts show that there is more imparted to the recipient than merely an eye full of images. It's not just like somebody flipped open a bunch of Polaroids and that's what they're seeing, just visual stuff. It's more than this. For example, if you've ever read through the book of Revelation or have any reference to it, you might know that in Revelation chapter 7, John writes about a very specific number of sons of Israel from every tribe. That's the same specific number that's mentioned later in the book that will not get the mark of the beast on their hands and foreheads, right? What number did John see? That's a trick question. He didn't see any number. He heard the number 144,000. That's what he heard. It says that clearly in the text. I heard the number 144,000 of the sons of Israel. And I turned to look, and I saw a multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribe, and tongue. No. That actually matters. It actually does matter because he didn't see the 144,000. He heard the number 144,000. So we have both hearing and seeing that take place in visions. But there's more than even just hearing and seeing. The one receiving the vision gains insight that demand a greater knowledge than what could be gained by merely hearing and seeing. In other words, visions impart knowledge of things that cannot be observed by the five senses. Visions are deeper than that. This is a sixth sense kind of experience for those receiving these visions. For example, again, in the book of Revelation, John refers to a period of time towards the end of the book that we call the millennium, 1,000 years. Now, the question about the millennium I'll bring in for today is this. How did John know that it was 1,000 years? No voice told him it was 1,000 years. No angel spoke that. He doesn't speak of a, of a floating label that kind of hangs over his head that make him know that. Uh, we don't have to imagine that he experienced a thousand years in this vision before he was brought back awake from it. How does he know that it's a thousand years? Well, quite simply, he just knows. God imparts that knowledge to him perfectly so that he can convey that for our benefit, Okay. It's more than just what you and I might experience if we were to walk into a room, observe some things, and then write them down. Visions are deeper than that. So concerning this vision, the one that Daniel has of this statue, how does he know the material properties of the metals and the clay and the iron that he sees in this image? He just knows. God just tells him. How does he know that that stone was cut from a mountain? How does he know that it was not by human hands? How does he know? He just knows. And that's something to keep in mind as we think about interpretations of visions. Because not only the experience of the vision, but the interpretation follows the same premise. When an interpretation of a vision or dream is given, it is only rarely explained how the recipient came to understand it. So sometimes we do see a vision is recorded, and then we'll see this in Daniel, even later in Daniel. A vision is recorded, Daniel doesn't know what it means, and an angel will speak the answer. An angel will finally tell him this is what the vision means, and so he gets the interpretation that way. But there are other times where the vision and the interpretation is just given. 
So Daniel and his three Hebrew counterparts are praying uh, the, the night prior to this event being uh, written about in Daniel 2. And he just knows the interpretation. He's not sitting there with his Hebrew buddies and going, yeah, this makes sense. Let's just make that up. No. God gave him, them, it sounds like a we thing, the interpretation. It's quite important that we understand this as we study prophecy in the Bible. There are some places where that will be very, very important to understanding what to do with the passage. Daniel 2, we'll see a little bit of it, and that will become more important as we get further into this book. And I'll remind you when we get there. So now he's told of the dream. These are the events of the dream that you saw, O king. Nebuchadnezzar, I can imagine, nods. Okay, continue on. Good, you've got, got that part right so far. Now Daniel gives the interpretation. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So in this interpretation, he starts by making it clear, Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon are the head of gold. The first and the uppermost part of the statue, the one made of the most precious metals, is Nebuchadnezzar himself. Again, as we saw earlier in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar only has his power because he's been given it by God. And what expansive power it is. He's even called the king of kings. Did you notice that there? There's only a couple of other uh, kings, earthly kings that are given that title in, in the Bible. But in the New Testament, only Jesus is given that title. But that power, that might, that glory, he has ruling authority over children of men, beasts of the field, birds of the air, wherever they dwell. It's a huge, exhaustive kind of rule given to Nebuchadnezzar by God. So just as with the head, Daniel's about to identify the rest of the parts of the statue as successions of kingdoms. That's what he's about to do. That's the parts of this statue, kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. Now, there is a surprising level of agreement amongst Bible scholars on how we should identify the kingdoms in this interpretation. Certainly you can find opposing views, but the overwhelming majority of commentators are in vast agreement on a huge portion of this text with one point of divergence, which we'll get to before we get to the end of our time today. So I'm going to give you not only what the specific interpretation is by Daniel, but what I think we can see is being talked about uh, throughout this passage. Let's move on to verse 39. If you want to put these slides up for them, 39 will be helpful. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. So in this single verse, Daniel identifies the next two parts of the statue as two more kingdoms. See that? The second kingdom, which had the silver chest and arms, can be identified historically as the Medo-Persian Empire which we're going to actually read more about in this book. It's actually going to come up in Daniel. He lives during that time as well. The third kingdom, which is bronze, the middle and thighs of bronze, is Greece, which spread to rule over the earth. Now notice that they said that, especially that first one there, is inferior to the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you, O king of Babylon, shall arise after you, and yet a third. 
I don't think we need to make a lot out of that word inferior there. Uh, in English, we make, we make it kind of like morally less or size less or something. It's kind of hard to fit that into history. Uh, the Aramaic word for inferior is literally just meaning of the ground, of the earth. So it's very likely what the author has in mind here, Daniel, as he's writing this in Aramaic, what he has in mind is that this is just closer to the ground. So another kingdom, the one that's coming closer to the ground in the list of the ordering here, will be the head of gold. Or after the head of gold will be the next one, which is a second kingdom, and then a third kingdom after. That's probably the case with the inferior language there. Verse 40 continues to the fourth kingdom. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. Because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. Uh, just last night, I'm reading this passage to my uh, older two kids as they're getting ready to get in bed. And without prompting, they asked, Dad, is iron stronger than gold? Yeah, iron's way stronger than gold. Iron would decimate gold. Gold is more, uh, uh, more pure. Gold is considered higher in value. But iron is way stronger. That's why this fits the idea. It is a dominant kingdom. And you'll notice that this fourth kingdom, unlike the previous two, predicts specific attributes that are associated with it. That iron being so strong, it shall break and crush whatever is left of the gold, silver, and bronze parts of the statue. It will be a dominant world power. This fourth kingdom is almost universally believed to be ancient Rome. There are some who think that it's Greece, but there's a very, very, very minor few who think that. Overwhelming agreement that this is Rome. I'm going to read to you quickly from commentator John Walton, who makes a comment on this point. The evidence in the writings of the church fathers is massive and in unison in favor of the Roman view. Do you know that in history, Rome even had uh, an iron legion? You ever heard of the iron legion of Rome? The ones that were, they were kind of an unstoppable force in their day. Uh, they were known to have such a powerful force and uh, ability that they were a highly decorated unit. They were known for their skill in hand-to-hand -hand combat, they, undefeated. They served, do you know where? In Judea, in Israel, during and just prior to the days of Christ, the Iron Legion. The case for this fourth kingdom being that of Rome is further bolstered by what comes next. Look at the next few verses, 41 through 43. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with a soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Now, nearly all scholars agree, again, that the feet refer to some continuation of the Roman Empire from its days of nearly unstoppable military might, that iron period, to a period of history in which there is a fracturing of its people as it mixes in marriage with a much weaker or more brittle group of people. However, this does bring us to the point of divergence. So if we've been walking with the scholars and history and the pastors and the writers and the readers of this text, largely we're all together on this hike and we're about to come to a fork in the road where there's a distinction of belief.
before I explain that, let's look at the fifth and final kingdom listed here. Verses 44 and 45. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation true. This concludes the interpretation given by Daniel. And he makes it clear that it is going to absolutely come to pass. Now, if there was any doubt of that, he makes it clear. It's certain. It's true. This is going to happen just as it has been written. The first kingdom, as you recall, was explicitly identified as Babylon. There's, there's just no possible wiggle room. He says it. Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. But the following three were not explicitly identified, which kind of makes sense. If they were kingdoms that were going to come after the days of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, even if he were to name them, if he were to know them and name them, it would be nonsense to Babylon's, uh, the king of Babylon's ears. They would come after in history. They would be meaningless. So we are left needing to apply our knowledge of other texts of the Bible and of history to discern what they're referring to. Who, who exactly are those kingdoms? But here again, this fifth kingdom is clearly identified for us. It is the only everlasting, undefeatable kingdom in all of history, which makes it unmistakable to identify. There's just no wiggling, there's no shaking on this. All believers can go, we know exactly who this is talking about. It is the only one indestructible kingdom in the Bible, Christ's kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. In fact, just to make it even extra clear, Nebuchadnezzar catches that without any question. He'll repeat the same idea later in chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar himself, who's hearing this, is going to proclaim in chapter 4, verse 3, how great are God's signs, his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Time would fail us to look at verse after verse after verse of the promise of the enduring nature of the kingdom of God. It even says in this text, it will not be left to other people. What does that mean? Well, just like as one nation falls, the people of that nation uh, now form it into a new one, that those things continue to pass down, that one kingdom goes away and another one picks up where they left off. That will not happen with this kingdom. This kingdom will never fail. Additionally, this vision even includes a familiar metaphor for Jesus, that of a stone, particularly a stone uncut by human hands, one that's not of human origin or forming. Jesus himself in Luke chapter 20 draws upon this very familiar idea of himself being the stone. He says this, pointing back to past prophecy and reclaiming it again in Luke 20, verses 17 through 18. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's quoting Old Testament prophecy. And he continues, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. 
Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is that stone. Anyone who seeks to overcome, fall upon, fall on that stone will be destroyed. And whatever that stone falls upon another, that other will be crushed. You'll notice here how different this stone is from the other kingdoms. It's distinct. It is a fifth kingdom. It is another kingdom that will be set up. You see, that's another kingdom that will not be destroyed. So we have right now in this image five kingdoms. The first four in the body and then a fifth coming in from outside. It is altogether different. And we see that by the language here in a few different ways. First, it's cut from a mountain. It doesn't come from that statue. It's not built on the same platform. It doesn't even come from the same geography. It comes from something else. It's cut from a mountain outside of this image. It's not made of those materials. So we should expect that this stone, this kingdom, would not come from the lineage of these other earthly kingdoms. It'd be something different. And this leader, this king who will lead this kingdom will not come from Babylon or from Persia or from Greece or even from Rome, but from outside. It is cut from a mountain by no human hand. By no human hand. This points to the supernatural, extraordinary nature of this kingdom. Not only... Did Jesus not originate in this world? In fact, he didn't originate at all, but always has been. He entered into this world by supernatural means. He was born of a virgin. He didn't just come about the way you and I come about. He came about with supernatural approval, with a supernatural coming. This great king who leads this great kingdom will not be fashioned by, trained by, prepared by, built upon these kingdoms of men. They will be destroyed. Third, this kingdom, this stone, became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, that's not repeated here at the end of the vision accounting. It's what is said about that stone back in verse 35. That stone will come and it'll crush. It'll strike the feet that are mixed of iron and clay, and it will become a mountain that fills the whole earth. This king, this great kingdom, does not build up this succession, but, but shatters it. It grows into something entirely different, something that is so great and vast that it can be said to fill the whole earth. So you and I ought not expect that this final kingdom would look like the others. That's kind of one of the main points of this. Jesus and this kingdom is not the platform upon which all these other kingdoms are built, but it's something altogether distinct. I want you to consider, too, there's only one statue in this vision. There aren't four statues. There's one statue that's integrally connected with these multiple parts. Kind of the way that the New Testament church has talked about being the singular body of Christ and yet comprised of its distinctive members. They are a singular entity. These kingdoms are a succession of human rulers who, for all their display of strength, eventually meet their end, as do their kingdoms. In fact, this was prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11. Where God says, for I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you. 
but of you I will not make a full end. This is what God says to his own people. Those nations will be as nothing. Nothing will be left of them but a full end. And this one becomes a mountain. It's altogether different. Isaiah 2, 2 draws upon this mountain language in the kingdom of God. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. There's this picture again of a growing mountain that eventually takes over and fills and all the nations shall flow to it. Jesus is king of an entirely different kind of nation and this kingdom encompasses every atom in heaven and on earth. I told you earlier that there's a major point of divergence among scholars, okay? And that divergence is regarding when this kingdom is established, when this stone strikes those brittle feet. That's the point of divergence. That's the point at which we part ways as believers on this particular account as to whether or not this is past event to us or a future event to us. Let me say that a little bit clearer. Some scholars believe that the striking of this stone into the brittle feet is a reference to Jesus' first coming into history. When he arrived on the scene in the midst of the Roman Empire days, when it is half brittle and it is half strong, and that's what was going on in that day, the Roman Empire was brittle, was made uh, weakened by the uh, mingling of the multiple nations that it had conquered at the time. And that this then is, is pointing to a point in time that is past to us, back in Jesus' first coming. Others, however, believe that this refers to Jesus' second coming. That is his coming in the future. All believers believe that Jesus did come in the first century, that he came as the perfect Lamb of God to die for the sins of the world, and that he will also return again at the end of human history. And that is the point of divergence here. When does this stone strike the feet? At the first coming or the second? I believe it is at the first coming. I believe, and what I'll be teaching from here on, is that I believe that this stone crushing the brittle feet is a reference to Jesus' first coming into history. And that we are yet waiting for him to come again in history. But this verse is talking about the one that already happened. So how can we know what time period this is? How can I make that claim? How can anyone determine what time frame this is talking about? Now, quick, quick something for you. A disclaimer here. This is a little bit of end time stuff. It's actually not a lot of end time stuff, but it's a little bit of it. I'll have to explain that in future weeks. If anyone ever tells you that they can, they can know the day, the time, the hour, begin to try to calculate timelines for when it is Jesus will return, run, okay? <laughs> Rebuke and run. Because that is for no man to know. But we are to look at these passages and study, well, uh, what should we expect in our future? What should we expect today? How, Lord, do you talk about the time in which we live so that we can be best prepared to obey? That, of course, does matter. And unfortunately, modern Christian church, especially Christians in the West, have been taught 
to not study or investigate or spend time in end times discussions. In fact, I've known many, many believers who will, in Bible study, study every book but Revelation. Well, I don't, I don't want to get into that one. Why? It's the only book in the entirety of the Bible that says that people will be blessed when they read it out loud to one another. It's one of the books of the Bible that is given to us by King Jesus, and it's one that is worthy of our investigation and study in humility. Lord, teach us that we may know and proclaim what is true. It's one of the reasons I've been looking forward to walking through Daniel with you, because there are parts of Daniel that do give us some helpful insights into what we should expect in our world today and in the future. So how can we know if this is the first or second advent of Jesus? How can we know what time frame this was to have happened at? One future for us or one past for us? Well, you saw right out of the gate in that verse that I just read in verse 44, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. So the setting up of the indestructible kingdom takes place in the days of those kings, that plural group of kings. Now, I want you to consider what that means. Consider the nature of the fourth kingdom. Each of those kingdoms had multiple kings in it, of course. But the nature of the fourth kingdom is this. The statue, of course, is ordered chronologically. No question. If you were to lay the statue down on its side, one happens, then the next, and the next. That's the way that this goes. So it is clear, and everyone's together here, that the feet refer to a time period that follow the legs. Right? Whatever time period the legs are talking about, the feet happen after. Got it. And at the same time, there's also agreement that there is continuity between the legs and the feet because they both share iron. It's not an entirely new set of properties, but there's some continuity between the two. There's also some language indicators that seem to imply that this is a divided kingdom, probably refers to both the iron and the iron and clay. But most importantly, we must notice there is no split at the ankles. In each case, one kingdom is successively overcome by the one that follows it. The Persians overthrow the Babylonians. The Greeks overthrow the Persians. The Romans overthrow the Greeks. And in this image, we do not see a fracturing here, a gap between the legs and the feet. Those who see this as a future event that the feet are a future revived Roman Empire. That's one of the dominant views today. It's a revived Roman Empire. Have to import into this text a gap that does not exist here. To assume a gap between the period of the fourth kingdom, the legs, and the revived yet more brittle version of that kingdom, many thousands of years later would demand an artificial fracturing of the statue. It would be imposing a significant time break in this passage that does not exist here. Now, very familiar with these end times passages, and I'm well aware that people claim to find biblical support for that time break in other passages, and they're just importing that in to this text. We're going to get to some of those later in our Daniel study, but you must notice that we do not see a gap here. Daniel 2 does not help in the thinking that these are two distinctive, separated, divaricating kingdoms. That case must be made elsewhere and brought here. When Jesus came to the earth, he came to establish 
his kingdom. When he came in his first advent, that's why he came. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus is said to have taught this. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is thousands of years. No. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He repeats this line multiple times. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus even gives us a list of kingdom parables to explain that he has come to begin this kingdom growth, and even though the people who will not acknowledge it and those who will oppose it will have to see that there will be growth even in the face of opposition. He says that it will be like a mustard seed that is planted in the ground, and it grows to be the largest of all the, the, the trees in the garden. He says that it will be like the wheat and the tares, he says, the Son of Man, Jesus himself, came to spread the seed and that the, the, the seed of the enemy was then put in there as well and that there, there will be the sons of the kingdom, the wheat, and the sons of the enemy, uh, the sons of Satan, will grow together all the way throughout that age until his second coming. These are significant things. Jesus even says in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Not that someday in a future age I will begin to plant the church and from that point forward it will not be overcome. Jesus has told us he has established his kingdom. He even said to the Jews, the Pharisees, on one particular occasion when they were challenging him, he said that the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. It is here in his day. You and I then are not awaiting a future time in which he will finally be in authority, ruling over his kingdom. But we are in that now. We await a day when Jesus will come again in the future, but not to establish reign that will follow, but to conclude a period of reign that is already now taking place. This is why in Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We say this over and over again because it is so significant. Jesus does not say, all authority in heaven has been given to me. Someday I'm coming back for that authority on earth. All authority in heaven and on earth has been, past tense, given to me. Jesus has it and retains it. It is a perfect. Jesus came into this earth born to a virgin. Like a rock cut from no human hand, from outside, into the Roman world into a fractured kingdom, one that was once unstoppable in its might of iron, but had already begun to fracture and break. This is why in Jesus' day, they're even arguing, the Romans and the Jews are arguing over who should kill Jesus and who has the authority to do that. Uh, how, who's, who's in charge? And There's all this political stuff going back and forth. The, the Romans are afraid of offending the Jews. The Jews are afraid of, 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 of angering the Romans because there's a fractured kingdom. This is happening all over the Roman world in that day. The kings can barely hold on to their power. As it continues to spread over that area, it is a fractured kingdom, no doubt. And it is at that point in human history when Jesus enters into our world. Guys, you remember why Jesus came? Jesus came because you and I are sinners. And in our sin against God, we are deserving of his just wrath. We are, determined, we are worthy of eternal conscience, conscious torment in hell forever. You and I, if we were to die today apart from Christ, deserve hell for all eternity. But we have a hope. 
Because God, in his great love for this world, sent Jesus so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus lived a perfect life. And he went to the cross to die for our sins. If you are not a believer today, you need to repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus. Believe on him and be saved. And if you don't know what that means, talk to another believer today. Talk to another Christian before you leave here. Give your life to him and submit to him as current reigning monarch over all in heaven and on earth. As he said, consider if this passage is not referring to Jesus' first coming, then it omits the single most important historical event of all time. Consider that. Those who would make the case that this is talking about Jesus' second coming, Jesus' second coming, without any reference to a first coming, would be quite an omission, would it not? Zero reference to this perfect Son of God coming in in the establishment of that kingdom. Now, why does this matter? I told you before that there's a disease that invades our modern church era. That people will say, ah, we don't need to study end time stuff. But there's also some over-fascination for these things, to be sure. We are to look at these things with clarity and seek out truth in this matter. We are to trust the Word of God more than our newspapers. Jesus is, as he has said, ruling and reigning right now in heaven and on earth. His kingdom is an everlasting one. It is one whose advance cannot be stopped, and it will overcome this world. But there are two errors that we must avoid on this account. First is to wrongly assume that Jesus is waiting until a future time in which he will rule and reign on earth. That's one error. To assume that he will someday in the future is when that rule and reign actually is exercised on earth. You have to know the dominant view today in the Western world is that Jesus is on his throne in heaven, but that we are awaiting a time when he will take a seat on a throne on earth. And until he is physically on the earth, he will not be ruling and reigning here. This is not what the Bible teaches. He is on his throne in heaven and ruling over the earth. People today have even fallen into the errors of saying, well, Jesus is not on the throne on earth. Biden is on the throne. Xi Jinping is on the throne. The Taliban is on the throne. Trudeau is on the throne. Putin is on the throne. All of these are the thrones of the earth today. To be sure, there are earthly leaders. There are wicked leaders. But even as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is on the throne today and will rule and reign until all of those enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. That's what he's busy doing now. Systematically, one after the next, making every enemy on this planet the footstool for his feet. And he will continue to do that until his return. And he will not return until that work has been completed. If you don't get this, You'll be prone to defeat and retreat. And that's exactly what we see in the Western world around us. In the culture wars that have raged over this past century, Christians have often retreated at the first sign of blood. This is why we've lost all of the institutions of our nation. All of them are in the hands of godless ones. All of them. None have yet been retained by believers. Why? 
Because Christians in our era, you need to know, have justified that retreat on the basis that this earth is not yet under Christ's ultimate reign. They say someday those institutions, those institutions will be worth fighting for, but not yet. Brothers and sisters, that is an error. You and I are not called to retreat off the field of battle. And if we are to see that Jesus will return someday, and that return will appear like the last helicopter leaving Vietnam or Afghanistan with the final remaining troops retreating to the roof of a building and getting out just before he comes in. That is a far different view than Jesus saying, I will establish my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You, under my authority, will go into the world preaching and proclaiming the gospel. And I will save everyone that I determined to save. If we have a different view... And that, we're going to run into major trouble. Rather than stand our ground on the cultural battlefields of this world, we'll retreat back to the rooftops. And that is absolutely what has happened. And it leads to awful, awful things for the world around us. That first error is to assume that Jesus is waiting until a future time in which he will rule and reign. But there is a second error that is just as awful. The second error is to expect that Jesus' reign will appear to the world as the reign of every other earthly king. Jesus' rule and reign today, the establishing, building, and growing of his kingdom will look different than all of the rest of those kingdoms before him. Do you remember the greatest victory In all of human history, it was the cross, the crucifixion of our King of Kings. That's the greatest victory. When Jesus went to the cross, the worldly people thought they had won. Aha, finally killed that Jesus. They went to bed happy that night. They thought they had defeated that king. They thought they had crushed his kingdom. Do you remember what Pilate had written over Jesus' head? King of kings, king, king of the Jews, right? In multiple languages. He, oh, he's your king. And now he's, be, look at this. <laughs> Destroyed. Even the Pharisees would join in on that same kind of mocking. You could save yourself. To save everybody else. Why can't you save yourself? They thought they won. But brothers and sisters, it was the greatest victory in all of human history. And that's the point. The victories of the kingdom building age will not be observable by the eyes of men. They will look altogether different. Hebrews 2 actually points to this exact idea. It draws on Old Testament prophecy and points to Jesus. It says that the Father puts everything in subjection to his Son's rule. Hebrews 2.8 says this, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, Jesus, he, the Father, left nothing outside of his, Jesus' control. Nothing is outside of Jesus' control. He's in all authority over heaven and earth. And it continues by saying this. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Why? Because Jesus' rule and reign will not be observable in the same way that the kings of this earth's victories will be observable. This is why I think that we have those those kingdom-building parables like the leaven in the dough. You look at the dough, you go, oh, nothing's happening. Yes, 
There's something working inside and it will grow. Have you ever watched a tree grow? How many times can you stand there and go, oh, look, look at it growing? No, you look at it and you go, it looks like it's not really doing anything. And yet, it will grow slowly but surely, absolutely, in the face of opposition and hostility. Nobody can stop that growth, that spread. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This means that he will establish it, he will start that thing, and nobody can snuff it out. It is going to grow. It is going to fill the earth. And no one else can do anything about it. The devil, his works and effects, the armies of hell itself cannot stop the advance of Christ's kingdom. Jesus even said to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. It will not spread and grow and conquer the way that the world's kingdoms do. So brother or sister, if you are saying, well, this cannot be, this cannot be the kingdom building age because it does not look like it's growing. Oh, really? We started with zero Christians and now there's hundreds of millions. How do you explain that? The Bible started, I mean, written in single languages in little times. Now there's hundreds of languages, nations, tribes, tongues that worship the name of Jesus and sing praises to him on this very Lord's day all over the place. Why? Because his kingdom has been advancing without fail, exactly as he said that he would. And even when the world thinks that it's crumbling, Christians don't buy into it. It is not. We are to look to things not with the eyes of the world, but with the eyes of Christ. We ask him to open the eyes of our hearts who may understand. The world won't understand our victories. They'll think they have won. For the record, what I am describing to you should be able to fit into any millennial view. If you know what I mean when I'm saying that, the different millennial views, you're feeling like your millennial view is being violated. Honestly, I will violate it later, hopefully. This really isn't the point. This technically isn't it. All Christians should be able to say, yep, King Jesus is reigning right now. All Christians of all those different end times views should be able to say, yes, he's already established his kingdom. Yes, he will grow his church without fail. Yes, we are to do his work and not retreat off the battlefield. All of us should be able to agree upon that. My goal is not primarily to change your millennial view, but to live today like faithful subjects of Jesus' kingdom, kingdom, whatever view you hold. And we can parse that out in other times. We have got to stop retreating off the battlefields. He is king. He is ruler. He is in control. He is in charge. This is why Christians ought not ever go engage in kingdom-building planning by shedding blood. Did you know that there have been people who proclaim the name of Christ, who are professing believers, who have tr- said that in past years, have tried to do that. That's wrong, because that's not the way this kingdom was to grow. We aren't to grow the kingdom by shedding blood. We're to proclaim the shed blood of the righteous one. We're to lay down our lives. That's how our kingdom will grow. It's altogether different. When the world chuckles over the burning corpses of believers, that is another step towards victory in Christ's kingdom. That's the way it works in this age. Nebuchadnezzar responds in this way. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering, an incense, be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery 
Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. This golden kingdom, this head of this statue, Daniel now is leading alongside this Nebuchadnezzar in this incredible point of influence. Daniel will be eyewitness to the rise and fall of nations. He's already observed the northern and southern kingdoms of, Judah, of Israel and then Judah. He lived through Judah. Saw that one rise and fall. He saw the rise now of Babylon. He will see the rise of Persia. But he points us to a nation, to a kingdom that will never be shaken. I heartily believe that Believers need to reclaim this view that believers have held throughout history and has waned in recent years in the West. We need to reclaim the view that we are on a march towards victory, spiritual victory, that even the things that will appear as losses in the eyes of many are a part of the plan and the strategy towards an ultimate win. And Jesus will return someday, and he will seat on a throne physically here on earth someday. And he will do so after, after he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And in that coming, the final enemy that will be destroyed is death. And that is what you and I are looking forward to, that final and eternal win. Let's remember this victory. Let's proclaim this victory and stop hanging our heads low when we look out in the world and see the ridiculous wickedness that our kings and emperors and those who claim to be all around us are doing. Jesus is king. He is Lord of lords, king of kings, the only one worthy of our worship. And we're gonna win. So smile. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we trust you and we, ex- we, we embrace the victory of the marching kingdom. It is not because of the Christians being so capable and our abilities being so great and our our cunning being just so cutting. It is because we have a perfect ruler. It is because we have been redeemed. It is because we get to proclaim to our enemies repentance and faith in Jesus. We get to pray for kings and emperors. We get to pray for even our own enemies. We get to watch our King Jesus convert and save and overwhelm more and more people. God, I pray that we would not forget to praise you for that victory. Lord, I thank you for this. And I pray for anyone who's here today who's who's been really discouraged by what they watch on the news, uh, really discouraged by what they watch going on in the world around them. I pray that we would reclaim that, that very much needed reminder from your word. You know what you're doing. The plan has been written. It is being executed. Jesus will build his church and nobody can say anything about it. It will happen. And we get to be those who take part in that work. So Father, help us to smile. Help us to cheerfully move forward in these days of battle, even though we may have to give our own lives, we may have to sacrifice, we may even have to have our own blood shed for the win of this kingdom, for the advance of Christ's kingdom, we will do so. And I pray these things in Jesus' good name. And all of God's people said, amen.